I've never been able to sit down while I preach. So if my choreography here is a little bit awkward, I'm getting used to it. Uh, I thought maybe I could bring my coffee cup up. But that's too many new things in uh, one experience. So I know Russ just prayed, but uh, I like to pray before I read my passage. So would you all pray with me? Gracious God, Lord of heaven and earth, as we come into this season of Advent, this first Sunday of excitement, anticipation, longing, but sometimes painful waiting, we ask for your guidance, your comfort, even as we wait for you. I pray that you would open our eyes to see what you would have us see and our ears to hear what you would have us hear this morning. Amen. So, our passage today is from the book of Hosea, as Russ mentioned. Um, It is from the second chapter of Hosea, uh, verses 16 through 23. I'm going to read that real quick. It should be up on the screen. In that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. And you will no longer call me my master. I will remove the names of the Baals from her lips. No longer will their names be invoked. In that day, I will make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field, the birds in the sky, and the creatures that move along the ground. Bow and sword and battle, I will abolish from the land so that all may lie down in safety. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you in righteousness and justice, in love and compassion. I will betroth you in faithfulness, and you will acknowledge the Lord. In that day, I will respond, declares the Lord. I will respond to the skies, and they will respond to the earth. And the earth will respond to the grain, the new wine, and the olive oil. And they will respond to Jezreel. I will plant her for myself in the land. I will show my love to the one I called, not my loved one. I will say to those called, not my people, you are my people. And they will say, you are are my God. That's our passage for this morning. So, just to start, if you're anything like me, uh, you probably have a couple different groups of people that you like to hang around. Especially as I've gotten older, I see a little bit more distance between these different groups, and I don't think this is really a bad thing, especially as you move from one place to another You have groups that you remember in old places and new places alike. Now here, this has been true since I lived here. I was born and raised here in Spokane. Um, I mostly hang around a lot of people who are non-religious. I might even call them anti-religious. They're very not into anything related to religion. They all have their own different spiritualities, I think. Don't tell them I said that. Even the most atheistic person I've met has some variety of spirituality inside them, whether they call it that or not, whether they recognize it or not. 
I was with some of these friends earlier this week. Just catching up has been, you know, really nice. I've been back in town since June and just kind of getting used to what it's like to be back here. And I happened to mention that I would be talking at church, which is not super new for them. Um, I was a pastor in Pittsburgh, and so they're a little bit used to it. Uh, And I also happened to mention I might be just a tiny bit concerned about it. You know, I grew up here. Uh, He even brought it up for me. Russ knew me when I was a teenager. You all, like you students, you got to meet him once you were past that stage. I I didn't get that. Um, So in return to that sort of anxiety, one of my non-religious friends said something really interesting. He just looked at me sort of non-committally, took a big swig from his beer, shrugged and said, I don't really understand what a sermon is, but what are you telling them about God that they don't already know? And this comment was helpful to me in a couple of ways. First of all, it was really good for my ego. Like, you know, I'm not that special. (laughs) Second, and more importantly, it reminded me that this beginning season of Advent, as we kick off this season, this is something we're all familiar with. Now, I want to welcome all of you into a time of the church calendar that you probably know very well. Instead of telling you anything new, what I'm going to be doing is highlighting something of the foundation of the story we find all throughout Scripture, from the beginning of time, through the prophets, like this prophet Hosea, to the story of Jesus Christ, and through the rest of church tradition until now. What we find in that story, throughout that thread, is the story of God's faithfulness. And of course, we all know that Jesus Christ is the pinnacle example of God's faithfulness. It all starts with covenantal love, this love that God committed God's self to. And we, in turn, are called to commit to that covenant. Now, the notion of covenantal love comes from the Hebrew word hesed. Um, I recently graduated from seminary and was told by many a preaching professor, never talk about biblical languages in your sermon. So somewhere in Pittsburgh, there are a couple people who are probably getting like telepathic chills right now because I'm about to do that. Um, But hey, they gave me the degree, so... Much of the time, when you see the word love in the Old Testament, uh, it's a translation of the word hesed, usually translated just love. Now, what's key here, and what I want to do, is explore just a little bit of the nuances of this word. What I mean is this. The English word love is pretty flexible, right? It can mean a lot of different things, sort of whether to our, you know, excitement or chagrin or whatever. That's just kind of the way it is. Hesed, as a concept, is a little bit more concrete than its English counterparts. Other translations that you've also seen include loving kindness and covenant loyalty, as opposed to covenant love, covenant loyalty or faithfulness. Now, interestingly, the use of this word is overwhelmingly on the side of God. So an action of God towards God's people, 
rather than the other way around. And, you know, at first, as I was looking this up, you know, I was like, yeah, that's surprising. And then I thought about it more, and I was, you know, no, that's not surprising at all, right? God's always been at the center of this thing called covenantal love. The covenant always comes at God's initiative. This is the theme I want to return to over and over again this morning. As we begin a season where we are going to see the pinnacle of that covenantal love in the birth of Jesus Christ, we go back to this foundation here. Even our ability to respond to the covenant and commit ourselves, even that is an act of grace. So we're looking at this Advent season through the lens of Hosea. I'll just give you a tiny little primer on Hosea. Hosea was a prophet called by God. Um, And Hosea's call was a bit unique in terms of uh, his message. And one of the things that was unique about Hosea is that he completely lived out the message in his everyday actions and life. Uh, God told him to go marry a woman who would inevitably be not faithful. I mean, that was part of the thing. It wasn't like, well, she might. You know, good luck, dude. It was like, no, no. And so Hosea does as he's told, um, marries uh, a spouse who ends up being unfaithful and continues to love her over and over again throughout these cycles. You know, throughout the book of Hosea, we have cycles of promises of judgment for Israel and then promises of restoration. And we all know what cycles of life are. Even something as plain and ordinary as the seasons talk about these cycles to us, right? Now, I don't like winter in particular. I hear there's snow tomorrow, and I'm just not into it. But I do like the idea of routine and cycles, year after year. And so I sort of forgive winter for that. I'm like, okay, you're a part of the routine. You're a part of the cycle, so... I'll I'll let you stay. I like the idea of ebb and flow. The book of Hosea is one of these cycles. The picture we get from Hosea and this woman he marries and is faithless, yet Hosea is faithful. We are looking at Advent through this lens because it affirms to us God's faithfulness to us when all seems lost. And it's our own fault, right? We all know what it is to put ourselves into the valley of the shadow of death. We all know well enough that many of the struggles of life are somewhat self-inflicted. Not all of them, of course, by any stretch of the imagination. We live in a fallen world, a sinful world, But a fair amount of our struggles, I would contend, comes from our blunders, shall we say. Kevin said something interesting last week when he was talking about pride and sort of closing our section on the deadly sins, how all of those we spent time examining are often the result of a lack of focus, a carelessness, if you will. How fitting it is, then, that we follow such a message with one of the most reflective seasons in the Christian calendar. 
Christians for centuries have used Advent as a time of reflection. So as we think about this covenantal love, we're refocusing ourselves, right? We're getting back into the idea of this foundational covenant that God first committed God's self to and that we, in turn, secondly respond to. So um, when I talk about covenantal love and it being at God's initiative, I thought of a quote from C.S. Lewis that says, To love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything, and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Lock it up safe in the coffin of your selfishness. It will not be broken. It will become impenetrable, unbreakable, irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable. Now, if we think about the covenant that God first made with Abraham all those years ago, God committed God's self to loving the whole of humankind from the beginning until the world is redeemed and perfected. And if what C.S. Lewis said about love is true, that means that God committed God's self to being vulnerable and capable of being hurt from the beginning of time until the world is redeemed and perfected. Think about what that means. The covenant love offered to us in scripture is a love that is returned to time and time again, no matter what cycles we fickle people go through. This morning's passage from Hosea that I read is one of great tenderness and, I think, vulnerability. In this text, God is the one speaking. God is sort of the agent. Uh, And God speaks of a time when God can lavish love on God's people freely, without any bonds. In that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband and no longer call me my master. Doesn't that sound like an expression of vulnerable joy, of expectancy on God's side as well as ours? Now, this sort of brings us to the topic at hand, namely Advent, and belies a little bit about what expectancy is supposed to look like. This passage comes in Hosea chapter 2, actually very early on in the book. Even though it's chapter 2, it's still very early throughout the book. And though later, time and time again, we hear of Israel's wrongdoing and subsequent consequences because there are actions and then there are consequences. That's how it works. The thing that piques my interest is that this setup places this promise of ultimate renewal before all of that. Despite what comes throughout the rest of the book, the tone is set for the whole message right here. Come what may, whatever mess Israel, whatever mess we get ourselves into, whatever consequences are reaped from what we sow, there will come a day, promises God, when all will lie down in safety, as verse 18 tells us. 
I had a conversation recently with someone uh, about how their understanding of who God is and how God relates to them is changing shape and form and in a way that's a little bit disappointing to them. I thought it was very profound how this person said, it doesn't make God any less committed to me. This person was open to the work of the Holy Spirit, changing their image of God throughout their lives and discernment, trusting that what they learned about God inevitably would fulfill them. The thing this person kept returning to was that God's promise is that eventually all things will be renewed and perfected. The foundation for this person's trust in God was covenantal love. They believe wholeheartedly that no matter what the evidence is throughout their life, God committed to that covenant and God will follow through on that covenant. At the core of this person's belief, they know deep within them that God committed God's self to them and to God's people. So then the question becomes, of course, this is all well and good. How are we supposed to respond to such covenant loyalty? to such sweeping love that we think we are not capable of. I like to think that a lot of what we're up to here in church is figuring out how to respond in the wake of this covenant God has committed to. It seems like a pretty big task, right? Responding to the love of someone who will not abandon us, no matter how we may abandon God. I'm just a person, and I'm imperfect, you say. And I am too, right? Okay, where are you going with this, Danielle? I don't have a perfect solution. I don't have really any solution immediately right now. But I do have a thought. Uh, So I have this side job, right? I work as a freelance writer. Now, writers in the room, don't get all wound up about your future as a freelance writer. Okay, because there is work, but uh, this, is, this is sort of what I do. I work for a third-party cor- corporation, takes on clients, other giant corporations. I mean, think giant. Uh, and they send me products or pictures of products with a list of their features. And I write product descriptions for them for like two hours a day. I just write product descriptions of all sorts of things. Like yesterday, I think I did a dartboard and like a baby toy and a, a USB port. It's hard to write 250 words about a USB port, okay? <laughs> when I first started, um, I was surprised to find out that there are a lot of stipulations on this. You have to put certain words in so search engines will pick them up. So when you Google black t-shirts, my product description is what will pop up because big corporations have to ensnare all of consumers, right? The biggest stipulation that was emphasized when I started was the notion of over-promising. So although I am a marketer, I guess, uh, I'm not supposed to say that the product will do good for you, basically. Words like excellent and sure to This product is sure to improve such and such thing. I can't say that even though that's exactly what the product is designed to do. 
Now, my slavery to the corporate machine differs from the Christian life in many ways. <laughs> but uh, there's one difference that really came to mind. This notion of overpromising is something we can just throw out and not worry about it. God's covenant with us means that we are allowed to overshoot when we commit ourselves to God. When we fall short, eventually, because we will, we've overpromised, sure. We've missed the mark. But just because we don't always keep our promises doesn't mean that God stops being faithful. Like Hosea, who time and time again welcomed his wife back into their home. God lets us return. God lets us make those promises. As far as the Christian life is concerned, overpromise all you want. All of this comes to fruition in a human person from Jesus Christ. That gives us a picture of ultimately what this is going to look like. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband and no longer call me my master. This idea of vulnerable love that God has committed God's self to is for all of eternity. So make no mistake, despite my emphasis on this whole covenant love thing being at God's initiative, I am in no way diminishing the role we have to play in responding to that covenantal love. All the more, given that God can and does give us everything God has, it's up to us to spend our lives committing and recommitting to the covenant over and over again. It doesn't make it okay when we break the covenant, but each recommitment is an opportunity to remember God's faithfulness, to thank God for God's faithfulness. A poet named Buddy Field, who is completely non-religious, once said, Forgiveness is the release of all hope for a better past. Despite Buddy's very, very self-proclaimed anti-religiousness, I think he's hit on a unique and quite biblical principle of what forgiveness is. The terms of the covenant dictate that we are always going to be the party that breaks it. But when we do, we can release those past breakings of the covenant. As we recommit, we can be confident that those breakings don't hold us back as we move forward. We will call God our husband, our partner, our equal. For God does not wish to be our Master, a person who we are subservient to. God doesn't want to treat us like we are subservient to God. God wants to treat us like God's partner. So this Advent season, I challenge you, don't be afraid to commit everything you have to Christ. Don't be afraid to make extreme promises you think you can't keep. Paul puts it pretty bluntly in Romans 5 when he says, And God expressed God's love for us in this. 
that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I would encourage you this Advent season to make a habit of recommitting yourself to covenant. And finally, don't do it alone. One of the things new community has always held highest in value is the value of relationship. We don't commit to this covenantal love individually on our own. God has committed this covenant for the whole church. The bride of Christ, the wife of Hosea. How many different pictures and metaphors have been used to explain what the church is. And guess what? None of those pictures looks like me or you. But those pictures look like me and you. And you and you and you. And so on. This is a large concept with everyday application. This covenant is too hard to commit to on your own, yes. Most importantly, we need the grace of God. But along with that, we need to share this covenant love amongst our church with one another. As you and your small groups, your families and your communities, your roommates begin this Advent season, I would encourage you to talk amongst each other about this recommitment what it looks like week to week, day to day, hour to hour. I'm going to read the passage one more time, being that this is a time of reflection. I'd like to sort of start us off listening and hearing, and I'm going to read a poem to close as well. In that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and you will no longer call me my master. I will remove the names of the Baals from her lips. No longer will their names be invoked. In that day, I will make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field, the birds in the sky, the creatures that move along the ground, bow and sword and battle, I will abolish from the land so that all may bow down in safety. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you in righteousness and justice, in love and in compassion. I will betroth you in faithfulness, and you will acknowledge the Lord. In that day, I will respond, declares the Lord. I will respond to the skies, and they will respond to the earth, and the earth will respond to the grain, the new wine, and the olive oil, and they will respond to Jezreel. I will plant her for myself in the land. I will show my love to the one called, not my loved one. I will say to those called, not my people, you are my people. And they will say, you are are my God. Now see, love is not a warm blanket, a magic spell, or a ticket out. Love is a knock on the door that never quiets. We wait for a love that cannot be explained by any words, by this poem, but I'll try my best. See, expectancy is the moment you jump off a cliff in summer. 
confident that the water below is enough to soften your fall. Your parents are unenthusiastic about this activity, but you know better. You know the water below you is soft. Covenant love is much like this. It is just as dangerous, believe me. We commit to it all for the chance to hear that we, those once called not loved, are now indeed loved. We are those once called not God's people, and now we are called God's people. Expectancy is the ache in your joints, the minute before a storm that you can't afford but you're going to get anyway. You don't have to be happy when you're drenched. You can curse at yourself and your mistakes for a minute in the dark, but make it a short minute because God is on God's way. God wants us excited. God wants us waiting, like the moment right after the night's darkest spot when the sun hasn't risen yet, but its preambles are seeping through that darkness. In that day, declares the Lord, I will show my love to the one called not my loved one. I will say to those called not my people, you are my people. And they will say, and we will all together say, you are my God.